Welcome to Off the Fence. I'm James Fox. We also have sitting next to me political novelist Alex Maskell. Say hi. What's up, everyone? It's good to have you back in, and it's good to be back uh, so swiftly. We recorded a show last week about Activate. That was a lot of fun. That story has gained more traction. There's more that's come from that. Uh, Evolve Politics have put out another report about what's happened in their investigation. So we'll be talking about that later on in the show. Uh, we'll also be talking about Andrew Adonis. What's he been saying this week? Labour peer to the right of the Labour Party and what he's been talking about. Um, some controversial stuff. We'll be talking about that in a bit. Um, and also you're going to be talking about the horrific events that have been going on in Myanmar. Why not you, Alex? Yes, I am. That's the plan. So that's coming up in the show. Before all of that, we're going to do a quick... Uh, quick mentions uh, if you want to follow us though first at off the fence talk on twitter is where we are on twitter we've also got youtube and on soundcloud we're soundcloud.com slash off the fence so what are we talking about quick mentions and um, did you hear about this book the daily mail put out and it kind of reminds me of the uh, the pig gate scandal because it's just so kind of outrageous but there's a book uh, that has been published by two journalists that was kind of uh, uh summarized in an article in the mail on Sunday, sorry. One of the few reasons to ever read the mail. Yeah, one of the few reasons I felt like it was worth going onto their site to check out what this was. The name of the article is Toppling Teresa uh, and it's by Tim Ross and Tom McTaggy. McTaggy? I think I'm saying his name right. McTague? McTague, that's probably it. It basically details the inside of the Tory campaign of what it was like during the general election. Most of the article that they put up there from the book is about the start of it anyway, the election night and what it was like. And there's some really funny moments in it. It's, it's almost brilliant. One of the standout things that people pointed out though was this phone call that supposedly Barack Obama made. Uh, and this is the actual quote from the actual article. This is just before the exit poll comes out. So this is like quarter to 10 apparently or something like that. Uh, back at Tory headquarters, they receive an important phone call. It's Obama. The former US president knew someone working on Labour's campaign who told him Corbyn is going to lose 20 or 30 seats. Uh, this was his former campaigner, Jim Messina, right? I, I imagine it's got to be Jim Messina. It's, it has to be Jim Messina. Yeah. An astonishing fucking loser. Yeah. And he says Corbyn is going to lose 20 or 30 seats. Not enough to force Corbyn out. Obama told a Tory friend to pass on an encouraging message. Labour expecting to lose seats, meaning the Tory majority will go up and the disastrous Corbyn is here to stay. The other, one of the other things there was apparently Andrew Marr phoned up Fiona Hill, one of uh, Theresa May's main advisers. And one of the ones that took a walk after the election, right? Yeah, took, took the blame, took the bullet. And uh, Fiona Hill got a call, you know, a few minutes before letting them know. It, um, Andrew Marr did say he told someone, uh, but it was only seconds before apparently now. So, but... Andrew Marr looked visibly shocked, like choking on the night. When they, when they went to Andrew Marr, like, and now we're going to go to Andrew Marr. I mean, he was almost choking. He couldn't talk when that exit ball came out. They were all like that. It was really fascinating just them being completely dumbfounded at how they can have been both so wrong and so ineffective at messaging. You know, that, that you could see genuine shock on all their faces. Anyway, check out, um, the book is called Betting the House, uh, so that's, you can check that out. Other thing that we saw, this report from Morgan Stanley. Apparently Morgan Stanley think that the government is going to fall next year and Theresa May is basically going to collapse, uh, according to their research. And this is from Politics Home reporting this. A research note by Morgan Stanley say the Prime Minister's fragile working majority and Labour's surge in the polls will also contribute to her demise and trigger another election. 
Um, they said they expect, quote, enough concessions to be made during the Brexit talks um, towards the end of this year or coming up to the rest of by the end of 2017. Uh, but do not consider her premiership to be sustainable much beyond that. The full quote they've got here is, uh, we expect the EU to offer a choice between a close relationship in which the UK can participate in the single market and customs union, but will be bound by the, the EU rules of the game and an arm's length relationship in the UK in which the UK achieves full sovereignty over borders, courts and laws, but does not participate in the single market and customs union. We think this choice splits the cabinet and the Conservative Party will lead to a loss of a vote of no confidence in Parliament, triggering early elections. Obviously, that's a lot harder under the Fixed Term Parliament Act, but that's what they think. I, 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 mean, know, I, I doubt Labour are going to get in their way. I don't know whether to take Morgan Stanley's research as, you know, a creditable, reliable kind of a barometer of whether these things will happen or not. But, but it, it's certainly interesting that, certainly, let's be honest, Tory-aligned institutions are already predicting their exactly, downfall. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. Another uh, cool thing that happened this week... We had, our, I think, one of our first Welsh Westminster voting intention polls for a quite a while. What were Labour on? A whole 50%, the big 5-0. So Labour 50%, Conservative 32 Applied uh, Cymru 8%, Lib Dem 4%, UKIP 3 This is meant to be one of those places where UKIP was strong, remember. I mean, everyone knows UKIP's collapsed, but um, that was a YouGov poll, September 5th to 7th, and the, the, that's the first one for Wales since the general election result. It was looking like this. Remember the start of the election campaign? Were Labour were going to be wiped out in Wales. That was know, what they were saying. Comparatively so. The Conservatives were going to be taking Wales as the largest party there. And that completely fell through. Um, with seem, Wales seemed to really break for Corbyn in a big way. In, in, incidentally, it was uh, Wrexham where Theresa May did her speech announcing the dementia tax, where it all kind of took a dive after that. But now, I'm going to talk about one Andrew Adonis. And for those that don't know, Andrew Adonis is formerly a Labour peer. He resigned the whip in October 2015, and this was directly after Corbyn was elected Labour Party leader. So Labour Party leader Corbyn comes in, and one of the first departures, you know, resignations from people like uh, McDugger and um, Tristram Hunt over the years, earlier this year, one of the first of those to kind of just leave straight away um, from the Labour whip was Andrew Adonis. Now, he didn't do this directly to spite Corbyn or necessarily to um, just, you know, make a statement about Corbyn's leadership, but it was something that the Tories um, touted as a victory for them. Why? Because he left the Labour whip to become a crossbench peer to join George Osborne's National Infrastructure Commission, uh, which he now chairs as well. Like so that, said, that's kind of viewed by them as a defection, even if it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a defection, but the Tories were like, this basically, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. effectively is. He's more on our side than he is on yours. Yeah, a lot of people in the media are saying, this is basically him saying, this is where the centre ground is now, yeah. with George Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, calling calling this guy, like, a diehard Labour loyalist is a bit yeah. spurious he is, to begin He is no, nowhere near that. Uh, of course, he joined... Labour in 1995 or 6. So what you're saying is the glory days of Labour, can you guess, the, the true Labour spirit. Yeah, can you guess where he was before that? I I reckon I can make a solid so guess. So he yeah. was uh, in the Liberal Democrats before that and previously a founding member of the SDP. Outstanding, impeccable left credentials. Yeah, so once Labour had become sufficiently neoliberal, he decided to uh, 
join on, jump on the bandwagon. So what you're saying is he has a very long and storied history as a splitter. Yeah, yeah, and apparently um, up up to about March this year he was still crossbench, and now he's joined the Labour the Labour whip again or something apparently because he he now he sees yeah, Labour see, doing well, so he's got to get back on. The wind's blowing. He's got to get back on board. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, I think that's the case. It's difficult because it's very confusing whether he's a Labour peer or he's a crossbench peer anymore. But um, I'd imagine if he has joined in, he'd be trying to keep it as ambiguous as possible. Yeah, he did work in the Blair government as well, and instantly he became part of the cabinet. He was yeah, he was a cabinet minister. And how did he manage that? He was an MP, right? No, no, he wasn't. Uh, they just made it, gave him a life peerage to become a peer, and then they put him in the cabinet. So no one ever. I, that really bothers me. I know America have so like an, kind, of, kind of like Mandelson. Yeah, yeah, and and same in America, they have an executive that's completely disassociated from the legislature. So all the people they put in are never usually elected. But even in America, it's just that's a little bit more open about it. Whereas this is kind of like just a bit behind the back. So that's a little bit about Andrew Adonis. He's also former chair of Progress. So. I mean, that's that's what yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the most hesitant members of Labour in Labour. Yeah. Well, recently he tweeted a slightly controversial tweet. We've talked about Stephen Bush and the New Statesman quite a few times, right? He basically tweeted an article saying, how, explaining how he thinks he's put, putting his case out there that Corbyn is the favourite to win the next election or be the largest party, blah blah blah, that sort of thing. Do do considerably better than the Conservatives. And Andrew Adonis uh, quote tweeted him saying. Leaders who lose a first election virtually never win a second. Labour needs a new leader, ASAP. This strikes me as shaky logic. <laughs> well, well, we're gonna we're gonna take apart that logic in a second. But just to put this into context, of course, this is someone on the right of Labour now. This is someone from Progress. This is someone of formerly the Liberal Democrats. The you know the kind of Blairite wing. I'm sure he's kind of you can he was part of the Blair government. He's he's, he's firmly part of that sort of part of the party, and. Before uh, the election, we have loads of people, John McTurnan, loads of other people saying that Corbyn needs to stand down, we need a new leadership. And that was so incessant that even even parts of the left um, started kind of giving up and falling to, towards that rhetoric. People like Owen Jones. There was a lot of that before the election. Since the election, there's been a dramatic change. One thing that the election did, the election result, is completely unify the party more than it's been for I can remember in ages. Previous critics of Jeremy Corbyn are now saying, you know, he's consolidated his leadership. He's going to be leading the party for a long time now, um, for as long as he wants, whatever. Um, it, the leadership is his to do what he wants with and take the party forward, uh, hopefully to a Labour government. Uh, so that's the context. So it's extremely rare to hear people going, nah, Corbyn's got to go. Yeah, Corbyn's got to go. He's got to stand down with a new leader. It's unusual. So here we have Andrew Adonis saying, because Corbyn didn't get a majority and didn't win, we'll come back to that word win, um, the uh, general election, uh, he won't win his second one. There's not a historical precedent for it. There's one thing we like to rely on in the politics of 2016 and 2017. It's, oh boy, those historical precedents that we like I mean, to rely everything's on. Everything's just so conventional these days. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. must adhere to the received wisdom of Andrew Adonis. Anyway, so he's basically saying it's never happened before. Very rare that someone... Uh, loses their first election and goes on to win their second. Well, let's just take him up on that because there were some responses that called him out on his bullshit. Here we go. Sir Robert Peel. 1835, he lost. 
and in 1837, then went on to win in 1941. Disraeli lost in 1868 and then won in 1874. Uh, Gladstone lost in 1880 and won in 1885. Salisbury lost in 1885 and won in 1886. Gladstone then came back to win in 1892 and then Salisbury won again in 1895. Ramsay MacDonald lost twice to Stanley Baldwin in the 20s and then won in 1929, all the way through that building up seats. Not just, I mean, winning the most amount of votes or the majority, but along the way there, Ramsay MacDonald and the Labour Party built seats up. It's important to remember that. And in 1935, Clement Attlee was the leader of the Labour Party and he lost, didn't win that election. But later, uh, he, you know, he should have he shouldn't have carried on then, should he? According to Andrew Adonis, if Clement Attlee lost, he should have, but no, he didn't. He carried on and he won in 1945, one of the greatest Labour governments that has ever been following World War II. Yeah, the great social democratic consensus. Yeah, which I, I would have thought Andrew Adonis would be able to appreciate. Anyway, Churchill lost uh, to Clement Attlee in 1945, of course, but won in 1951. So there's another example. And of course, there's Ted Heath as well, lost in 1966, won in 1970. And there's other examples that are being pulled out as well. There's plenty more to pull from there. It's quite an extensive list of uh, prime ministers. So how did Andrew, Andrew Adonis come back to this? Uh, what were, well, he had a number of excuses. Shall we hear them? Shall we hear them, Alex? Let's go for it. So he was basically, oh, well, anything pre-1928 doesn't matter because universal suffrage. It's not of actually course. democracy. Of course. It, it, it's, it's all women who absolutely hate a first-time loser. Yeah. So they're, they're suddenly being added would completely change things. <laughs> So that, that wasn't uh, apparently, so we're already discarding that. So he's just going on like the last 70 years, the 60, 70 years. Um, apparently the 1935 election and the 1945 election are invalid because there wasn't a 1940 election due to World War II. So this theory, uh, you can't apply it there, it's just invalid. So we have to discard those, take them out of the data sample. They don't matter, which I find really interesting because first off, I get that why the 1945 election uh, is invalid to him. That, his argument there is, Basically, that if there was a 1940 election, but there wasn't because of World War II, if there was, Churchill obviously would have won it. So that means that when he lost in 1945, it wouldn't have been the first loss. It would have been a, a win and then a loss. And then he'd win again in 1951. As if that's like how events happen. If yeah, th at this point, we're just getting into like alternate history. Yeah, the, the butterfly. Yeah, whatever. Um, but what I really don't get is how he says the 1935 election is invalid. Because well, that that one is because he needs it to be true because he wants his thesis to be correct because he <laughs> wants Corbyn to go. But if 1935, um, basically, if Clement Attlee lost there, and he's basically arguing that 1940, oh Churchill definitely would have won that one. So you're saying Clement Attlee would have lost again for the second time if he was the candidate. Um, and then going by his like extremely flawed alternative history logic he's saying well everything after world war ii would have carried on exactly the same yeah so therefore clement attlee would have won and then he would have let lose lose win and it's like no it's you, just have, you have to create a whole branching scenario <laughs> for this otherwise <laughs> it, it's very flawed yeah it, it, it there's it's extremely confusing you know, what if the germans had won the war and um, the other thing i always point out with this is we've mentioned this on the show before but with our first past the post system and I mentioned, I kind of hinted it earlier there, talking about Ramsay MacDonald building up seats for the Labour Party. This idea of winning um, with uh, with him, it's it's kind of kind of very wishy-washy. He argues that oh, Cameron definitely won against Gordon Brown, even though he didn't win a majority. So, it, so do you mean you got the most votes? Is that is that the the winning aspect of it there? Even though we have a parliamentary system, not a, a presidential one. Um, 
it, it, it seems kind of a bit wishy-washy what he's going with there and he doesn't seem to be able to identify that parties build up seats across elections um, and because of the way we have a first past the post system where there's safe seats that parties know that they can't fight in that means those parties don't operate in those areas and that parties have to prioritise resources elsewhere and different places the parties never all, I hate this kind of idea that the parties all start on zero and they've all got an equal chance and it's just whoever gets the most votes whoever goes it all starts on zero whoever gets there parties start from different standing points and it's the kind of net change across the elections that really does matter as well yeah, yeah. the overall of course you want to get to a majority of course you want to be the largest party all those sorts of things but this the idea of the only, the only way you win an election the only way of winning is oh Theresa May obviously won if Theresa May won the election why is she not putting any of the manifesto into practice yeah and people it, go it, oh well actually that's because she lost a majority oh, she lost a majority did she she lost and all these other things and all these asterisks that we have to put on it and it's why don't you actually look at the, the electoral system not being all starting on zero and then whoever gets the most wins it's not like that yeah I don't under like you have to have like a really myopic idea of you know what the situation was to look at the last election and think of Corbyn as anything other than the ultimate victor whether or not he won the like the whether or not the actual state of the country flipped to him he made massive territorial gains at a point where let's be honest the party was not fighting at a hundred percent all the systems of the party that he didn't directly control we're just trying to like prepare to not be completely crushed rather than going on the offensive as we now appreciate they clearly should have you know it, it's the reason that you know he's still in place is because anyone who's looking at this with anything other than like this fawning apologia for the kind of forces that want him out is that wow if us at 60 percent and him in charge can uh, beat that those kinds of odds what can us at a hundred percent and him in charge do? Yeah, it's. But also, I th I think there's a. I think there's a more like a more obvious ground to, like dispute this way. Even if you take his position, like as given, there we'll just say for the moment, vir they virtually never win a second after losing a first. Well, do you know what also virtually never happens? A losing candidate being more popular and commanding more of the voting intention coming out of a losing election yeah. than going into it. We're gonna, we'll talk more about Adonis's critique of uh, Corbyn's performance at the election in a minute. But, uh, that tweet that he did saying, you know, if you stand down, they never win a second time after losing the first. Chris Williamson, cabinet minister, he uh, tweeted back saying, behave, Andrew, you're historically wrong and you're disrespecting the democratic will of hundreds of thousands of members and millions of supporters. Uh, remember, 3.5 million more votes uh, for the Labour Party at this election. The biggest increase of the vote share since 1945. And this man is saying, well, no, it was, it was not yeah. good enough. Not know. to mention, like, and all it, right, Andrew, how about we have another leadership election? That I mean, we could have had years. Owen Smith. Imagine if Owen Smith had led the Labour Party. Do you imagine the huge gains we'd be seeing right now? I can't imagine what the political landscape would look like in the wake of that kind of political heavyweight, I'll be honest. Yeah. But you know, Corbyn, like we were saying earlier with that Welsh poll, one of the best things about the election was Corbyn basically saved Labour in Wales. Yeah. Uh, ironically, it would have been the alternative leader, the Welsh 
uh, man leading Labour that would have just, comp- you know, I, w- I would argue that uh, we'd had more losses if I oh, yeah. had run it. Do you remember the genuine zombies who, after the election, were going, <laughs> well, imagine how well we could have done with a more centrist candidate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all those people that weren't voting in the election yeah, essentially for a- years, since 2001. Yeah, just d- completely disconnected from politics. Yeah, those people would have been delighted by a third Miliband brother that they just dragged up from a bog somewhere. Like, th- I mean, that's fundamentally the kind of person Andrew Adonis is as well, where they assume that, you know, because they assume that people are in the centre, as opposed to where people actually are, which is in an incoherent hodgepodge of left and right, and whatever can be made to seem most, uh, m- like, most immediately a pressing to their specific priorities you know who uh, whichever side of those like mishmash of left and right things will win you know if you convince them that you know better funded social services will beat out their fear of immigrants then the left will win that's like barely anyone is actually in the center this kind of radical centrist thing where you're sure it would be fine either way but you just want to kind of put it in the middle where no one can really do much of anything that's exclusively the territory of like deeply comfortable upper middle class people who will be fine either way and they could take on the affectation of caring very slightly for the vulnerable under a centrist labor or they could claw back a bit more of their tax money under a very centrist Tory party but that's not where most people are it's just disproportionately you know the territory of the media class the pundit class and, you know, people like Andrew Adonis. Also, to be said, uh, Navarra Media are going to have him on, apparently, hopefully, for a debate. And they'd love to see who he suggests who should be Labour leader. Not just, yeah, just anyone but Corbyn. You know, I, if he says that, I'm going to... F- anyway, uh, a little bit more about uh, Andrew Adonis, because he did put an article in Prospect magazine where it feels like everything he's talking about here uh, is, is where his inspiration from was this article. What's the title? It's Forget Ideas, Do the Math. And it's clear political leadership always comes down to character. You mean a, a politician's character has nothing to do with the ideas that they promote? I don't know. I mean, have you ever heard anything more technocratic in your life than forget ideas, do the maths? So this is basically a piece in Prospect magazine that he puts forward that literally the personality and character of the leader is all that matters to you winning an election. Everything else is completely secondary. He basically puts points on how good a leader they are, and also the spirit of the times, <laughs> as he says it. So basically, oh, yeah. it's basically do the, the maths on these totally quantifiable things. Yeah. So uh, the best bit is when he admits that all this is just his fucking opinion, man. Like it's just what he thinks. Yeah. This is like the joke of what technocratic <laughs> politics, like go. political punditry is. Yeah, guess good. Let's hear it. These leadership points are inevitably my subjective opinion, but I have endeavoured to be fair and not let my political preferences colour things. Kennedy is a hero, whereas Nixon is a figure to send a shiver down my spine. But on the basis of Nixon's greater experience and authority, I have ranked the pair as tied. I mean, they did both end their terms early. (laughs) In the British context, I might feel more affinity to Gateskill than Thatcher in her zealous prime. But that has not stopped me scoring her more highly. The points given reflect leadership attributes, plain and simple, not preference. Who are you trying to convince, Andrew Donis? Who are you trying to convince? Later on, he goes, furthermore, other people I have consulted, who, who have you consulted, Andrew? Other people I have consulted about my rankings have not awarded points much differently from I. 
in only a tiny number of closely matched cases have different winners resulted from any disagreements. I invite you, the reader, to try and see how many, if any, of the 39 elections you would award differently using the same 15-point scale. News to you, Andrew, there's some in there that I definitely would. And this is a guy that clearly thinks that May has more leadership uh, credentials than Corbyn because that's how he ranked it. Oh yeah, and of that's and that that received wisdom as oh May a good leader there. She's strong. She's going to lead Britain through Brexit. Corbyn he's weak. He's weak and wobbly. We want strong and stable. And what did the election do? Completely blew that received wisdom yeah. apart. And and even the public, even according to the ratings, the lead the popularity ratings and uh, opinion polling, a large swathes of the public bought into that idea, that, that thinking. And then the election shook it out of them. Uh, they saw that Theresa May wasn't strong and stable. She was weak and wobbly. And they saw that Corbyn had leadership qualities, such as talking up for the people who have no voice. That's that's what a leader should do, yeah. in my or opinion. Or being the first like political leader in this country in generations who's been honest about things like foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I mean that is... That is uh, that is leadership. But all, that is not something I'd expect Andrew Donis to be able to identify. But also there's a quote here which says, if you're a party member and want to be in power, you need to hold on to your values but ignore all else and simply find the best leader you can to put them into effect. Yeah. Which seems like what they did. <laughs> that, that seems like a perfect description of the Corbyn phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. But, but he wouldn't agree on that, you see. Of and do you know why? Because it's subjective, Andrew. It's subjective. And also because... And I don't like throwing this term around, but he is a fucking, like, a red Tory. There's another quote from it just before that one you read that I was going to read, uh, which is particularly, like, pompous, but... So, consigned to the dustbin, class, income, age, geography, policy, ideology demographics and all else that confuses pollsters, sophologists, journalists and historians in explaining national election outcomes. All are superfluous. Focus only on leaders and what makes for successful leadership at the time. And I'm sure that kind of thinking would work in a kind, the kind of neoliberal age and thinking where Andrew Dennis comes from, where yeah. there's an agreed settlement and there's nothing no longer to be decided anymore. We will have to have the similar sort of economic out, uh, policies and social policies the same as well. And it's all basically that. And basically, Labour and Conservatives or Democrats and Republicans have to meet each other in the middle and basically become almost clones of each other. And we have to have a Labour Party that basically we can't tell the difference from the Conservatives on. Yeah, it's that Francis Especially to anyone who doesn't follow politics. Yeah, it's that Francis Fukuyama end of history thing where it's like, okay, we've basically agreed on the best kinds of governments and there are no, you know, contrasting and conflicting and mutually contradictory you know, material forces at play within our culture. It's just that we've all agreed on anything minor, a couple of differences in managerial policy. It's this completely outdated model of things that led us into economic crisis and then has completely failed to justify itself in the wake of that crisis. It's it's a completely insane thesis. And just his rules for this, that he, like positions as being akin to mathematics are insane he may as well like weight particular scale electrics and say whichever one wins the race is going to win the next election it's it's absurd it's it's everything that you like mock among like the dumbest indulgences of like uh, so-called political science it is almost a caricature but uh his analysis of corbyn's performance of the election went such as this it was the kind of tired and yawning juicing 
line of, oh, Corbyn only won because May did really shit and was ran an awful campaign, blah, blah, blah. Which, of course, he had nothing to do with. There's, yeah. There's absolutely no way in which a contrast between the two might have hurt May. Yeah, uh, her personal ratings plummeted, so that's why. But if that's true, you know, if her, her personal ratings did, did plummet, but the way he's making it out is like that May dropped. Whereas start of the campaign, end of the campaign, Tories were basically on the same point they were. Yeah. It was that Labour had that had massively engaged voters that hadn't been there before. Yeah. People that were disaffected, disenfranchised, whatever. They brought them in and what's that got to do with Conservatives? You know, in terms of an election campaign um, rather than government. But anyway, um, that's that's one thing. Uh, Corbyn can, he also says Corbyn can only win in 2020 versus May or someone basically a suicide candidate like Jacob Rees-Mogg. So basically, he can only win via the current person or the person who who will replace her. Yeah, so he can can only win via someone who's shit or someone who's really even worse. Well, I don't know, guys. It seems like they are doomed. We really need to replace (laughs) Corbyn. Um, uh, He does does think that Corbyn would lose to Ruth Davidson. Uh, if Ruth the Tories Davidson... would never put Ruth Davidson forward. Well, I think they might get desperate enough to try, but it might be quite a while until they can no, do no, so. No. The, the fucking like English aristocracy will never settle for being represented by a Scot. <laughs> That's, I'd never thought of that angle. But let's just sum- summarise this. Andrew Donis, a man who joined Labour once it had become sufficiently neoliberal and has never held elected office, ever, and was put into the shadow cabinet by getting a life peerage just, just so he could get shoved in there, proclaims the leader who added 3.5 million votes to their party and shot up their membership rolls. During the biggest election polling shift in living memory, according to David Butler, and commands the wishes of the overwhelming majority of its members should resign because of a historical precedent which does not exist. In profoundly ahistorical times. Yeah. I don't know. I think we should definitely go with the political instinct of someone who joined the SDP. (laughs) He does think Labour shouldn't split now, but... um... Anyway, nobody's ever voted for Adonis on anything, so that's let's take his advice. Let's have a listen to what you've got, Alex. So uh, this is obviously a lot more serious, this story, from you, from across the world. Yes, I'm taking us on a journey overseas. Zaid Rad al-Hussein, the High Commissioner on Human Rights for the United States, has declared the Myanmar military's action against its uh, Rohingya Muslim population to seem to be, quote, a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Meanwhile, Myanmar's civilian leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, a leader who once drew comparisons to Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, has remained silent on the issue, even denying it in in conversations with the BBC and with our good friend who we've reported on before, Tayyip Erdogan, uh, the president of Turkey. Uh, now, this is an extremely uh, tr- like troubling story that I'm sorry, I've, I've got to bring up because it's really worth knowing about. So. Uh, Just to give a quick overview, uh, Myanmar, otherwise known as Burma, uh, a lot of those terms are used interchangeably. Uh, Presently, the country is called Myanmar, but things about it are Burmese, so try and keep track of that uh, throughout this. Uh, Myanmar, as many uh, deeply dysfunctional countries uh, throughout the world, has a history as a British colony for several centuries uh, before being granted independence in 1948. Uh, then existed as a sovereign democracy uh, until about 14 years later where it was overtaken by a military junta. Uh, It's been in an ongoing state of civil war ever since independence in what has been called the world's longest civil war. So, 
for a very, very long time, military junta ruled by the military. Um, and into this, we meet Aung San Suu Kyi. Now, she was a democracy activist, the daughter of Aung San, the anti-imperialist commander who helped negotiate Burmese independence uh, from the British. Uh, uh, he was actually assassinated uh, on the part of certain other factions within the country. Uh, she famously spent 15 years over a 21-year period in and out of military house arrest, refusing to leave the country even as her family fled. Shortly after her arrest, her party, the National League for Democracy, won 80% of legislative seats, but Myanmar's State Law and Order Restoration Council refused to recognize election results. So this is the extent to which the obvious popular will of the people was behind her the entire time, but was just being completely overruled by the deeply dictatorial forces that were holding Myanmar at the time. Uh, she quickly became a sort of activist pop icon. Uh, she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991, even though she could only receive it in 2012 after she was released. Um, and upon her release in 2010, she quickly became an elected politician, and in 2015, the NLD won another historic majority in Myanmar's first ever truly freely held parliamentary election. She's unable to become president because she has foreign relatives. It wouldn't just a bizarre little bit of Myanmar uh, bylaw, but uh, that apparently counts against her. So she was made a state councillor, an executive position made just for her, uh, that according to CNN uh, meant that she was widely expected to allow her to rule by proxy. However, the military does maintain a very, very heavy role in this, uh, in much the same way as Turkey did until very recently. Uh, so it's that kind of thing where, you know, democracy exists, civilian rule exists, but the military does have their finger on the button. Now, this brings us to today's events. Uh, throughout the civil war in Myanmar, which again has been going on for about 70 years, the Rohingya, a Muslim minority of the largely Buddhist Myanmar, have met with intense violation of human rights at the hands of the Burmese military. We're talking mass militarized sexual assault, we're talking massacre of civilians. Uh, most recently, on August the 25th, a small armed faction of the Rohingya attacked a number of police stations. In response to these attacks, uh, which may have killed as many as 110 people, including 12 officers, the military has reportedly been burning villages and attacking civilians to drive them out of the country altogether. Now, this obviously is a form of ethnic cleansing, and one of the most effective ones. Uh, if anyone here uh, I don't know if any of our listeners uh, also follow Radio War Nerd, but they really should. Uh, something which uh, John Do journalist John Dolan talks about a lot is how effective of a tool of ethnic cleansing uh, mass displacement is. Because when you're fleeing and you're on the run, you can't settle down, you can't properly forage for food or maintain a food source. The reality is your children are the first ones who die. And so by properly displacing a community, you can effectively wipe out the next generation of that community. It's something that you see practiced in ethnic cleansings all over the world, and it's it appears to be going on here. Um, now, the Burmese military have uh, responded by denying these charges and declaring that the Rohingya are illegal immigrants. Uh, the Rohingya were actually stripped of their citizenship in 1982 by the dominant military junta at the time, and they've never been given it back. And in fact, since then, they've been rather callously referred to, not as Rohingya, not as their actual 
ethnic term, but simply as Bengali. According to Sarah Wildman in Vox, the 300,000 of them who fled into Bang Bangladesh since the 25th aren't the first ones to flee into Bangladesh. Uh, according to Sarah Wildman, in the 1930s, more than 250,000 Rohingya fled Myanmar for Bangladesh, trying to escape rape, violence, and forced labor. In 2012, according to Human Rights Watch, sectarian violence between ultra-nationalist Buddhists and the Muslim minority led to destroyed mosques, homes, numerous deaths, and the displacement of more than 150,000 Rohingya. Internally displaced Rohingya have lived in refugee camps in the years since. So this is... Like, this isn't something we really think about, of, you know, a majority of Buddhists, like, violently oppressing a Muslim population. Uh, but that it's something that's been going on here for decades and decades and decades, and it's worth mentioning that the Rohingya aren't new arrivals to Myanmar. Uh, you know, they were showing up as early as the 18th and 19th century, and they've been, you know, moving in more and more for decades, but there there is a place for them within that country and its ethnic makeup, and has been for centuries. And so this refusal to acknowledge their citizenship is very, very chilling, and it's something that actually... Uh, several Holocaust centers have noted as potentially being something that would be done in the ramp up to a genocide. Um, now, the armed Rohingya militant group that uh, staged these coordinated attacks have declared a month-long ceasefire to allow aid agencies in, but the Myanmar government refused their order, declining to negotiate with quote-unquote terrorists. Now, whether or not police forces count as legitimate military targets or civilian targets and thus terrorism targets in a state of civil war is contentious, but it, it to me it, it's kind of shaky. Like, the police force here is intrinsically, is intensely militarized and is, you know, still vastly controlled by the military. So to my mind, it's like the, there, there are non-police people in there but to me it is kind of a military target so i'm not sure if i'd qualify that as terrorism even for that small group uh the un and international aid groups have been denied access to any rohingya still remaining in myanmar so if they're still there they haven't been able to get hold of them whatsoever uh the one million rohingya in the world are as such stateless people and as we say the uh the bengali government refuses to exist uh, to acknowledge that they are present within the country at all as legitimate citizens. Uh, meanwhile, Aung San Suu Kyi has denied that the ethnic cleansing is proceeding. Uh, on the phone with winning humanitarian Recep Tayyip Erdogan, she blamed, let's see if any of this sounds familiar, fake information. And her office stated that these claims were calculated to create a lot of problems between different communities and with the aim of promoting the interest of the terrorists. Uh, now again, uh, quoting extensively from Sarah Wildman over at Vox, whose coverage of this has been really good. Like, Vox is often kind of lame, although they have shifted in a slightly more interesting direction post-election. But their, their foreign coverage is generally okay uh, on this kind of... Certainly in this part of the world where we don't have any significant oil interests. Um, Dosu Ki does not hold sway, legal sway over the military's treatment of the Muslim minority. A statement from her that explicitly condemns sectarian violence and repression would go far. Uh, it's the military which has control of power in very, very key parts of the state. 
Olaf Blomqvist, a researcher at Amnesty International in London, told me on Thursday. This does not absolve Sue Kyi of responsibility. She has a political and moral responsibility to speak out to stem this violence, he added. She hasn't, and that's hugely disappointing. Some feel that it's worse than disappointing. There's even a change.org petition lobbying for her to lose her peace prize, which is coming up to well over 350,000 signatures. Uh, and it's a sentiment that was argued in a Guardian op-ed by George Monbiot. Um, this is in part because it's not the first time she's failed to unfold and, uh, to acknowledge an unfolding crackdown against a group that the UN has called the world's most persecuted minority. In an April interview with the BBC, she explicitly insisted the actions against the Rohingya were not ethnic cleansing. And back in October, she seemed dismissive of the issue when she told a, a press conference, Show me a country without human rights issues. She has consistently seemed reluctant to criticise the military's actions. Again, that's all from Sarah Wildman over at Vox. So currently, that's the, that's the situation over in Myanmar. We have what appears to be a fully-fledged ethnic cleansing. And the kind of, you know, Western-celebrated domestic heroes that we're supposed to have been able to put our faith in appear to be completely unwilling or unable to step forward and, you know, potentially make a difference in this. And it's important to point out this is a downward trajectory. Things are getting worse there. It doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon. Yes, this, this violence is a significant, uh, it's a, a significant escalation over the state of things as they you know previously were mm, hopefully uh next time you have news on that though hopefully it'll be something a little bit more hopeful but uh hopefully yeah it's obviously not uh, it's something someone we should think about as things go forward a last story if you listened to last week's show uh you'll have remembered we talked about activate quite a lot new tory grassroots youth group yeah you know a real bunch of winners just canny political operatives well it was revealed last week that evolved politics had been undercover in them and they find it they found it very easy to be able to uh, infiltrate the group uh, making quite a obviously kind of fake account and being able to get in one hurdle they found in part two that they've released over the weekend is that um, they needed to have to pay membership fees to gain access to the, the secret Facebook group literally uh, the main qualification they needed to get access to this was a profile picture of them with a boat yeah and then 10 pounds like and a bit of money yeah. that's basically it so there, there was a bit uh there's there there actually quite a funny bit that i remember putting saying um so now that Tori thomas's facebook account was finalized and we set it up and everything like that and we got and talked to them the next stage of our operation was to try and infiltrate activate secret members group on facebook but because evolve weren't willing to lie and fake a Tory thomas paypal account to purchase our membership we really were expecting to fall at the first hurdle um, so they got contacted by Fizan Adris, which is uh, the uh, membership director at the time. He's long gone, but apparently now, actually, he's been put back in. So he, he's oh, been welcomed. Who, who wouldn't want to get back on this train? Yeah, he's he's been welcomed back with open arms. So he was someone that uh, left, and we did a profile on him last week. He was the guy who called uh, Grenfell survivor a ungrateful bitch for critiquing the government's response. Hell yeah, compassionate conservatism. Yeah, and, and also ha uh, filmed kids like boxing each other uh, and all that stuff. He's the one who's dealing with the membership. So he messaged the uh, Tory Thomas persona saying, uh, you're going to need to send us the membership fees or whatever. And Evolve Politics were like, man, we've got to pay Tories. This sucks. With hindsight on our side, we definitely feel it was £10 well spent. <laughs> and it, it, in actual fact, um, 
when they got kicked out of the group somehow the paypal got refunded as well so they got their money back anyway but the main points of their part two of this investigation that they revealed was um other than having to give them give them money and then get it refunded later anyway it's how they handled criticism and abuse and they on the first 24 hours of the investigation there is dozens and dozens of people that they banned at least maybe 30 40 50 people um that they banned just straight away that um, looks a lot more than 30 40 50 yeah well this is the first 24 hours so you can imagine that's gonna be like that's about 100 people there almost but you know that's the first 24 hours could you imagine how many people they banned from their facebook after like a week or two of doing this i can only imagine and according to um the mole that was in there tory thomas um from evolve politics apparently like all the stuff they get in was like it wasn't even like abuse it was just like harsh criticism of what they were doing like people just calling them out for being like why should we vote for your party because of x y and z like you know listing you know how they've treated the disabled all those sorts of things and apparently they were just just banning people because they couldn't handle the criticism who knew who knew um, and even um the uh the the main guy who's been on tv and been doing all the uh, media appearances sam ancliffe he wrote a, a particularly like crybaby uh blog post about how the left are silenced on the right and use activate as an example the people were bullied out of the the group apparently and you look at the stuff that, that they listed on here and it's just like i love how when they thought they were gonna try and like engage the youth with conservative politics they apparently thought that they would face no resistance yeah. from the youth who I mean, don't hashtag like hashtag meme policies. hashtag retweet um that was their first ever post um, alongside that well, um, uh, you know if they didn't label it hashtag meme how would you know what it was yeah there was also how they they just didn't really understand how to use twitter gary markwell the main guy who's a, a counselor from west sussex and uh, made a twitter account and then told the others that he'd done it and was just like i don't really get it i don't know what's going on and um, basically not even really understanding how what twitter's for and how you can use it effectively and also they uh, show how they also reveal how um the guys how he was basically handing out the passwords for social media like sweets uh, and then lo and behold the twitter gets taken over by um rogue tweeters which is quite funny so check out the rest of that on evolve politics there's all up on there the more the bigger details we won't give you loads of it now you can read it up on there that's where we're leaving things today on off the fence thanks for listening if you've been with us um all the way through uh we're out of course at off the fence talk on twitter do follow us on there if you can and you can subscribe on youtube as well plus catch us on soundcloud.com slash off the fence cheers